Well, for the last couple of weeks, as I said, we've been, we've been making our way through what is uh, a really famous sermon that Jesus preached uh, in Luke chapter 6. This sermon is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. After Jesus had spent an entire night, an entire night in prayer to his father, he chose 12 men that he was going to pour his life into over the next few years. Jesus was going to take these guys, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, even a, even a guy that we all have heard of named Judas, right? He's going to pour his life into these 12 men to equip them and to train them to be the leaders who are going to begin to take his message and his ministry to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is going to pour, that's what discipleship is, isn't it? If you look at Mark's gospel, it says that, that he, he chose them to be with him. He wanted these 12 guys to be around him 24-7, basically traveling everywhere, listening to him teach and eating meals, and, and, and he was going to pour his life into these guys. And as soon as he selected them, their time of intense training was about to begin. They came down the mountain, and Jesus came with them, and he began ministering to the crowds that were gathered there. Luke tells us that it was a huge crowd. We read that in, in earlier in chapter 6. And it was a crowd that was made up of, it says, his disciples and many others who had come to hear him teach and, and to see and hear Jesus. And so as you picture this scene where this whole sermon is unfolding, I want you to picture not just a handful of disciples, the 12 gathered there listening to Jesus. No, there's a, there's a huge crowd of his disciples gathered on a level place somewhere beneath one of the mountains in Galilee. Now, two weeks ago, I, I showed you this, this picture, and it's, um, this is one of many possible locations where, where this sermon could have taken place. The picture that you see behind me uh, is a picture of, of Mount Arbel, and what I challenge you to think of is just picture hundreds, if not thousands of people gathering along the lower hills here of Arbel to listen to Jesus as, as he was teaching them. I also think I mentioned at the time that you can kind of see this, this valley that's forming to the right there. That's called the Valley of the Doves, and it was the path that people would travel by foot if you were leaving Galilee and heading down towards Jerusalem. You would cut through this, this valley. And so this was a prime location where Jesus may have been able to meet with a large crowd of people um, and possibly where this sermon took place. But I thought this morning I would show you another picture. Uh, this next one is taken in the spot where when I was in Israel last summer, this, this spot is where we sat and, and our, our tour guide read the words or some of the words from Jesus' sermon here reading to us and, and, and inviting us to sit there and imagine being one of those disciples, listening to the words of Jesus, and this is the scene that you're looking at. And I thought I'd just point out that, so this is a little bit further north, closer to Capernaum, uh, which is, by the way, where we're going uh, in our next message. We'll be heading back to Capernaum. Um, I'm like shining this on myself, like, why isn't it working? <laughs> Let's try it this way. Okay, so on this... So we were sitting over here, and you can actually see this is our bell right here. That's the, the, the previous picture, our bell. That's, that's that hill right there. And then see the valley right, right there next to the right of our bell? 
And then you see that in the distance, there's that little like mound with a little crater in the middle, two, two little, that's called the Horns of Hatim. Um, and there's a famous battle that was fought there in July 4th, uh, I believe seven, no, 1187. I almost said 17, no. 1187, July 4th, that's where the, uh, the Battle of Hatim took place. And that's when the, the Crusaders uh, were defeated there by the Muslims uh, as they came into that area. That's where that battle took place. So anyway, as you can imagine, just sitting there with Jesus. And that's what I want you to be thinking about um, in your mind as we, as, we look at this, as we look at this passage. Well, in verse 20, uh, again, this was the, the first part of, of the sermon. We read that after he ministered to the crowds, right? He was ministering to them. He was healing them. He then lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he began to teach them. And in this sermon Jesus gave, he, he began to teach his followers about what life in his kingdom looks like. What does it look like to be one of my followers? That's what Jesus is teaching them. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? And what we've discovered over the past couple of weeks is that Jesus expects his followers to think and to live in a way that is radically different than those who are in the world, those who do not know him. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at some very difficult teachings of Jesus. He told us that we're supposed to rejoice when we suffer. That's not natural, right? That's not the normal response to suffering. He also told us that we were to love our enemies, right? That was last week. How many people really enjoyed that? That was favorite message I've ever heard. <laughs> love your enemies. What Jesus is teaching his disciples, and that includes you and me, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, then you're a disciple. And so this message is for us. And, and what he's teaching us is that the way that we're supposed to live is completely countercultural. It's totally counterintuitive. And humanly speaking, we talked about this. It's absolutely impossible, isn't it? It's absolutely impossible to live the way that Jesus is calling his disciples to live, humanly speaking. But as we talked about last week, it is not impossible, is it? It's not. For those who have become his followers, for those who have received his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, have been indwelt by his Holy Spirit, it is possible. It's possible. The Bible says that if you become a follower of Jesus, you become a child of God. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to dwell in you and to, to empower you to do the things that he is calling you to do. Brothers and sisters, this, this type of radical living is possible. It's really important that you believe that, right? Because if you don't believe that, you're just going to take the easy way out every single time. Even when the Holy Spirit is prompting you to say, do this, you're like, that's impossible. Instead of saying, I can do it with your help. And that's the key, right? We need the help of Jesus to be able to live the way that he is calling us to live. Well, before we jump in and, and finish looking at this sermon that Jesus preached, I wanna take a moment to just refresh our memories of what he has covered so far. Two weeks ago in verses 20 to 26, we saw that being a follower of Jesus changes the way that we view our circumstances. Knowing that 
knowing that his followers are going to face persecution, right? He knows, that, he knows that the disciples, the 12, as well as the others that are gathered, he knows they're going to suffer and be persecuted as a result of their decision to follow him. And knowing that, Jesus looks at them and he says, when that happens to you, when you suffer for my sake, I want you to rejoice. I want you to leap for joy. It's ridiculous, right? But he tells them why. He says, because yours is the kingdom of God and your reward is great in heaven. You see, followers of Jesus realize that that we're not living for the temporary comforts and pleasures of this life. That we are part of an eternal kingdom and our treasure is not here on earth. Our treasure is in where? It's in heaven. Our treasure is actually a, a person. Our treasure is an eternal relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. And so that when you realize that, and it's not just an intellectual, when you really believe that, all of a sudden the sufferings and the persecution and the circumstances of your life look very different, right? Because no matter what happens to you, you have the greatest treasure. That's what Jesus taught in verses 20 to 26. But not only that, we saw in verses 27 to 38 that being a follower of Jesus also changes the way that we, that we view and the way that we relate to others, and particularly in how we view and relate to our enemies or those who persecute us. Jesus said last week, he says, you know, like anyone can love those who love them. That's easy, right? It's easy to love those who love you. But Jesus says, no, my disciples are going to live radically different. My disciples are going to love not just those who love them. They're going to love their enemies. And he says, and this is how you're going to do it. This is what I'm going to do. I want you to do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. That's not natural, right? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is so radical. It's so completely unnatural. But it is exactly the way that Jesus lived, right? Jesus set the example. He didn't just tell us to live this way. He modeled it, even to the point where we talked about last week that that as he was hanging on the cross, he prayed to his father and asked his father to forgive the very people who were killing him. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Why? Because Jesus had an eternal perspective. He loved his enemies. enemies, And and the thing that he wanted more than anything was for them to come to the true saving relationship with him. He was willing to be persecuted so that they could be saved, right? And that is what Jesus is calling us to do as well. That's how he's calling us to live. He wants us to get to the point where, where yes, people are gonna persecute you. Yes, they're gonna hurt you, but I want you to care more about their salvation than protecting yourself or your rights. Love them, pray for them, bless them. You want them to be saved because listen, the alternative is an eternal separation from God and that's really a big deal. Well, this morning, as we wrap up this this sermon of Jesus, we're going to see two more ways that being a follower of Jesus changes how we think 
and how we live. In verses 39 to 45, we're going to see that, the, that being a follower of Jesus changes the way that we view ourselves, changes the way we think about how God is calling us to live. And in verses 46 to 49, we're going to see that being a follower of Jesus changes the way that we view God and his word. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 6, and we're going to jump in in verse 39. Luke 6, 39, Jesus continuing his sermon, he said, <clears throat> he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Luke says that Jesus also told them a, a parable. Actually, uh, in these closing verses that we're gonna be looking at this morning, Jesus is gonna share three parables with his followers. So let, let, before we jump in and look at those, let's just talk briefly about what a parable is because if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, if you read through those three, you're gonna see Jesus teaching in parables all the time. This is one of his favorite teaching tools. And um, there's literally dozens and dozens of, of parables. So, so what is a parable? Well, put simply, a parable is, is a simple story that is used to highlight a deeper spiritual truth. I've heard parables described this way, and maybe this will help you to remember them. It's, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus was a master at using parables. I, I am actually not good at this. I, I, some people are just so, you're, they want to teach you something and they, they can, they use like different things to illustrate, right? It's like a hammer. And they can just explain how whatever this thing is spiritually speaking is like a hammer. Um, I'm not actually naturally very good at this, but, but Jesus was a master at it. So uh, some of Jesus' parables, he would, he would take simple things, right? He would take simple things like um, farming, tending sheep. He would talk about finding treasures in a field or uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at one, right? The new and the old wineskins or sewing a new piece of cloth on an old garment, right? They were earthly things, earthly stories, but they had a deeper spiritual or heavenly meaning. Some of his better known parables are, are the parable of the good Samaritan. I love that one. We're gonna get to that eventually. The parable of the sower who casts seeds on different types of soil or the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son or the, the prodigal son. And in all of these examples, Jesus was using things that were common to illustrate a deeper spiritual lesson. And that's exactly what he's doing here. So he begins this, this last section of the message with, with two rhetorical questions. I don't know that he actually paused and waited for them to answer, uh, answer the questions, but he said, can a blind man lead a, a blind man? That's what he asked. And the presumed answer that he's looking for is, no, no. And question two is meant to highlight the reason why. Question two, will they not both fall into a pit? And the presumed answer is yes, yes. They're both gonna end up in a pit. They're both gonna end up in some dangerous situation if you have a blind person leading a blind person. Generally speaking, I think we can all agree that it is not a good idea to have a blind person leading another blind person. I think if you saw 
honestly, if you saw a person like reaching out and saying, hey, can somebody help me get from here to there? They were blind. And a person next to them who's also blind said, yeah, follow me, and put their hand on their shoulder. Sir, if you saw that happening, what would you do? What would you do? You'd say, whoa, 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 let me help both of you, (laughs) right? Because you would recognize that this is a dangerous situation, right? This is not ideal. And you have something that they need. You have sight. And so you want to help them. We have a similar saying that we use today to describe a situation where one person who knows nothing is getting help or being led by another person who knows about the same, nothing. We say things like, it's like the blind leading the blind. And, and we, we use that in a sort of comical way, right? To describe a lot of times when we're leading somebody else or helping somebody else do something, we'll say, yeah, it's like the blind leading the blind over here, right? And, and here's the thing. In some situations... In some situations, it really is not a big deal to have the blind leading the blind. If two people who don't know how to bake a cake, and I'm not trying to offend any of our bakers here, okay? But if two people who don't know how to bake a cake attempt to make a cake, as long as they don't burn the house down, it's really not a huge deal if the cake doesn't come out okay, right? If they forget some key ingredients or they add too much of something or not, right? It's not the end of the world, is it? I mean, you do miss out on the the opportunity to eat a delicious piece of cake. So maybe that is the end of the world for, for some. But really, at the end of the day, what have you lost? You've lost some flour, some sugar, some eggs. You could say you lost time, but you probably had a blast doing it. So maybe you had fun making a mess out of out of a cake. But there are other situations where the stakes are a little higher. Let's say for a moment, let's say for a moment that you're sitting here and you know absolutely nothing about cars, about working on cars. And let's say for some, it makes no sense at all, but for some reason you said, man, I need to change my engine or my transmission. I'm going to call Pastor Chris to help. You've got issues um, if you do that. But let's just say that you did, okay? And let's just say that I was foolish enough to say, sure, I'll help you change your engine. No problem. Come right over with my toolkit. Uh, yeah. I don't, even, I don't even think I own any tools that are specifically for cars. I know nothing about cars. And when I say I know nothing, like I, I've literally changed my oil once in my entire life. Okay, And that was because it was at a youth group function where we had a mechanic in the church who was teaching the youth how to change their oil. <laughs> so I was there. I brought my car as a demo. And he's like, yeah, we're going to get you under here. And he's like, yeah, grab this wrench. And I, I technically changed my oil. Okay, I know nothing about changing. I, I, don't know anything. I don't know anything about cars. But let's just say that I did come over to help you change the engine in your car. I am actually pretty confident that we could probably find a way to get the old one out. Maybe I'm overconfident. I probably can't because I don't have the right tools. But let's just say we did. Look, I am pretty confident it would be the blind leading the blind, and I'm pretty confident you would be out thousands and thousands of dollars, okay? 
This is a very costly mistake, right? Sometimes it's not baking a cake. Sometimes it's changing a car, and it pays to have somebody who actually can see, right? Who actually knows what they're doing. In the situation that Jesus is describing, it, more than money on the line, we're talking about lives. Th- this is a potentially deadly situation to have a blind person leading the blind. In the days of Jesus, blind people relied on those with sight to help them navigate away from, from danger. I don't think they had seeing eye dogs at, at that time. If a blind person was leading another blind person, they could both fall into a pit. And the word that's used here for pit is describing a deep hole. Think of a, think of a water cistern that would have been dug to collect water. If, if a blind person is leading another blind person, they could both fall into a, a cistern or to a deep cavern or a, or a hole. At the very least, they could both be severely injured or worse, they could die. See, what a blind person needs is someone who has sight. But Jesus isn't talking about physical blindness, is he here? No, it's a parable. It's a parable. Jesus is describing a spiritual reality because there's something that's far worse than even physical death, and that is spiritual death, to be eternally separated from God. And I want you to remember, we've taken three weeks to get through this sermon. Jesus did it in one sitting, okay? So everything is, is connected. Don't separate this teaching from the teaching about the idea of loving your enemies and, and wanting their eternal good. There is something worse than physical death, and that's spiritual separation from God. Jesus wants his followers to recognize the dangers of following those who are spiritually blind, people like the Pharisees. In the book of Matthew, Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly referred to the Pharisees as being blind. He called them blind men, blind fools, blind guides. The thing is, they thought that they could see. They thought that they could see, but Jesus said that they were spiritually blind. In Matthew 15, verse 14, Jesus said this about the Pharisees. He says, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Same illustration, right? Describing the Pharisees. Now, it's tempting when we hear that to say, oh, so Jesus isn't talking about me. He's talking about the Pharisees here. But what did I say at the beginning? Don't come into this thinking, what is he saying about them? What is he saying to me? What's he saying to me? Because he's talking to his disciples. He's happy that the Pharisees, if they're there, are listening. He's happy that others are listening, but he's talking to his disciples. And he wants his followers to understand the importance of following those whose eyes have been opened. You need to follow people whose eyes are not blind, but they've been open to the truth. Followers of Jesus need to have godly role models in their life. You know that? You know that you need, everybody needs godly mentors and role models, right? We all need that. In verse 40, Jesus continues and he says, he he tells them why. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus says, it really matters who you follow. It matters who you follow because they're leading you someplace, right? And you're going to become 
like the ones you follow. You're going to become like your teachers. Jesus wants his followers to understand the importance of following those whose eyes have been opened. Those who have recognized their need for Jesus and have experienced his grace and his forgiveness. Only those who have had their eyes open can lead others to the truth. You can't lead someone where you've never been, right? Only those, only those who can sing with, with, with hearts of gratitude the words of amazing grace are ready to lead other people to that amazing grace, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch like me. I once was lost, right? Not anymore. I am now found. I once was blind, but now I see. Jesus wants his followers to understand the importance of following those who are following him. Because ultimately, who's the teacher we need to be following? It, it's Jesus. Those who are becoming like Jesus are the ones that we want to be following. They're, they're not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. No, nobody is perfect except for Jesus, right? But they're pointing people to the one who is perfect. Those are the type of people that you want to follow. Chuck Swindoll says this, leaders in God's kingdom lead others by their own discipleship. Unlike teachers in the world who stand before their followers, facing them on the basis of their own authority, leaders in Christ's kingdom lead with their backs to their followers in submission to and in steadfast pursuit of the teacher. Isn't that a great picture? I feel like I should preach the rest of the sermon like this, right? <laughs> Don't look at me. Do what, do what Paul said, right? In, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. If I'm not following Christ, please do not follow me, right? It matters. It matters who you follow. We need to have good role models, people who will point us to Jesus. So followers of Jesus, we, we, need, to be, we, we need to have godly leaders. We need to have godly mentors. We need to have godly uh, role models. But, but more than that, followers of Jesus also need to be godly leaders. They need to be godly mentors. They need to be godly role models. Don't they, like, I don't, I don't care how new a Christian you are, you are called to lead and point people to Jesus. One of the biggest mistakes that we make in discipleship is saying, well, once you accumulate this much knowledge, now you're ready to start leading other people to Jesus. No, as soon as you start following Jesus, you start saying, come and follow me. I don't know much, but I'll learn with you, right? Let's learn together. That's what we're called to do. And so you're not just called to follow godly leaders and mentors, you're called to be a godly leader and mentor. And now he's gonna explain a little bit about the process of, of being that for others. So in verses 41 and 42, Jesus continues and he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? By the way, this is now the second parable in our, in our, in our story today, or in, our, in, our, in this sermon. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. 
when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Isn't that a great picture? It's a great picture. Now you've heard it so many times that you're like, yeah, the speck in the log, you know, like heard it, <laughs> whatever, right? Now, I am telling you, I'm telling you when Jesus said this, that I am telling the people there must have laughed. They had to, at least they chuckled on the inside. I hope you still chuckle on the inside when you picture this, right? The thought of someone with a giant beam and what, the word that's used here it describes the, the main beam of a house. So you got this giant beam sticking out of my eye, right? And I look over at my brother over here. I'm like, looks like you might have some sawdust in your eye. It's a ridiculous picture that Jesus is painting for them, right? This is absolutely ridiculous. He said that, why would you, you would never do that, right? Here's the thing, people can see right through this type of hypocrisy, can't they? When you've got obvious sin in your own life and you're like walking around saying, oh, you know, brother, you really should take care of that issue that you got going on there, right? I, I, oh, do I point them out? I mean, listen, Christians, I was, having, I was in a Bible study yesterday morning. We were talking about this very idea that, 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 that Christians want to run around and say, oh, you shouldn't be smoking. At the same time, they're grossly overweight. And the person who's smoking says, well, you shouldn't be eating, right? Deal with the sin in your own life so that you can help others with the sin in their life. Last week, I talked about the fact that don't misread this as saying you should never judge. You should never call out or help people with their sins. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's just saying, don't be ignorant of the sins in your own life. You've got sins in your life. You need to deal with those sins, right? You need to take care of those sins in your life. Followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus need to deal honestly with their own sins and their own shortcomings. Anybody here have any? Good, at least 12 of you. That's awesome. We do, right? We have our own sins. We have our own shortcomings and we need to deal with them. Hopefully deal with them before they become a giant log that everybody's staring at, right? We need to spend time with God in prayer and in his word, right? Asking him to search our hearts, confessing our sin and asking him to reveal anything in our lives that we need to deal with, right? Psalm 139, the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You willing to pray that prayer to God? God, search me. Know my heart, try me, know my thoughts. Look at every area. Don't leave any stone unturned, God. I want you to help me become more and more like Jesus. I don't, want to, I don't want any hidden sins in my life. I don't want any of that. I want to become more like your son. Are you willing to pray that prayer? Jesus says, before you can help others with their sin, you have to deal with your own. You gotta deal with it. Then you can help them 
right? You can help them. Because when we deal honestly with our sin and we experience the unmerited love and forgiveness and grace and mercy of God, we become conduits of that same love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness to others. I think one of the the most overlooked benefits of practicing what Jesus says here, the idea of removing the log so you can remove the speck, is this. It changes how you remove the speck. When you have been the recipient of God's amazing grace, you don't barge into someone's eyeball, right? To say, you gotta get rid of that speck, brother. That's embarrassing for the Christian community. No, you come in with gentleness as someone who's experienced God's grace. Like, man, I I love you so much. I wanna help you with this. I want you to experience the freedom that God has given me because I once was lost, but now I'm fine, was was blind, but now I see. It changes the way you approach them. And they can feel that difference, can't they? People know the difference between someone who's coming at them with a sledgehammer and someone who's coming at them gently, trying to walk with them and help them overcome the sins in their life. Last week, I talked about the fact that we're not called to judge. God's gonna take care of that. We're called to help people be ready to meet the judge, right? There's a big difference. Well, Jesus says his followers need They need to have godly leaders, mentors, role models, and they need to be godly leaders, mentors, and role models. We need to be honest. We need to be humble, repenting of our sins so that we can help others. So Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then in verse 43, he continues. And he says, for, for, for is another word for because, right? So these are connected. These are connected. For, for, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes and grapes are not picked from a bramble bush. I, I don't even, I should have looked at, what is a bramble bush? I, I, don't, I hope I don't have any, I'll have to talk to my friend Adam over here and see if he knows what a bram, bramble bush is. Do I have bramble bushes growing at my house? I don't know. I do. Oh, he nodded his head. <laughs> Gonna have to call the uh, landscaper to come over and help me out with the bramble. So in, in this second parable or, or picture, Jesus says it, it's pretty easy to identify what type of tree you're looking at. It's pretty easy. If a tree has apples on it, it's probably an, an apple tree. If it has oranges on it, it's probably an orange tree. If it produces good fruit, it's a good tree. If it produces bad fruit, it's a bad tree. Jesus says that each tree is known by the fruit that it produces. So you're thinking, great, great. Now we know about fruit trees, right? Yay. Now we can all start a landscaping business planting fruit trees. That's not the point here, is it? What's the spiritual point that Jesus is trying to make here? Well, in verse 45, he continues and he says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus says, you know, people are actually a lot like trees because what is produced on the outside of a person, what's produced on the outside is determined by what is inside that person. The things you do 
reveal what you are. The things you do reveal what you are. Are you producing logs? What type of fruit are you producing? Jesus says that the one way you can check the fruit in your life here is to look at your speech. This isn't the only way, right? He's just giving an example here, but it's a good one. He says, look at your speech. Look at the words that you say. For out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, you also do certain behaviors, right? Even if you don't say anything with your mouth. But here he focuses on what you speak. So question for you, brothers and sisters, listen, what is your mouth revealing about what's in your heart? What do the words that you speak reveal about what's happening inside of here? And again, I said it before, it's too easy. It's too easy right here to say, oh, so wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Jesus is talking to his followers. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. This is about me. Chris, what do the words you speak reveal about what's in your heart? Jesus is inviting us to examine our lives, to look at the fruit that's being produced in your life. You might find good fruit. He's not assuming. There's not an assumption here that, oh, you're going to look at it and everyone's going to say it's all bad. No, there might be some good there. There might be a lot of good there. Jesus is encouraging his followers to look at the fruit of the lives. Examine your life. What kind of fruit am I producing? What do the words that I speak reveal about what's in my heart? When I look at my life, it, Galatians chapter five, we won't turn there and read it, but you go there this week. Galatians five, okay, Galatians five, Paul compares the, talks about the, the fruit of the spirit versus the works of the flesh, okay? You look at those two lists and read down through them and saying, okay, does my fruit the, pro, the product of my life, does it look more like this or does it look more like this, you know? And you're probably gonna see both, right? The point that Jesus is making is evaluate, look at it, examine the fruit in your life. Jesus isn't saying you're gonna be perfect here. That's not the point that Jesus is making. There's only one person who is perfect on this, land, on this, on this earth, right? And that was Jesus. We're not perfect, not yet, you're gonna be. Does that excite you? That excite you? It should. We're all in a process, right? The Bible calls that process sanctification. That's the theological term for the idea of God making you more and more like, your, uh, like his son, Jesus. Those of us who are truly his followers, we're gonna see evidence. If we look at our lives, you should see evidence that fruit is being produced in your life. Paul in, in his church to Corinth, uh, in his church, no, in his letter to the church in, in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, examine yourselves. Same idea, look at the fruit. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And we love, we love to preach the eternal security of the believer. The idea that you are eternally secure. I believe in that doctrine. If you are his, you are his. Nothing's gonna change that. I fully believe that. But I think sometimes we are too quick to tell people if they are truly his. 
Only God and they are able to answer that question, right? And so Paul says, you examine your life to see if you are really in the faith. Jesus says, look at the fruit of your life to see if you're really one of my children. There should be evidence of God's fruit being born through our, through our lives. And if we see, when we look at it, if you look at the fruit, you're like, okay, Jesus says, look at the fruit. I'm gonna look at the fruit of my life. If what you see isn't good, what do you do? Throw in the towel and give up? No, no. If, if you see a log, repent of it. Say, Jesus, thank you for exposing this log in my life. Thank you for showing me the areas that I still need to grow. And then with his help, with his help, begin to, to receive his forgiveness and begin to walk in obedience to him. It's what he does. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm chapter one. Because Psalm chapter one gives us the key to living a fruitful life. You wanna live a life that's full of fruit? You want apples and oranges falling off your limbs? I mean, like this is, you wanna be fruitful? Do what Psalm one says. Psalm one, I'm just gonna read the first three verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He says that the, the man that's blessed doesn't do that. And you just look at what those things are. See, what you put in is what's gonna come out, right? You wanna, you wanna have, a, have rotten, rotten fruit hanging from your limbs? Do what he says here. Go hang out with the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, and sit in the seat of scoffers. That's a good way to produce fruit, right? That, that's, that's the way to do it. But the blessed man, verse two says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Wow, fruit everywhere. Boom, 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 falling off of that tree, right? The key to living a life that produces an abundance of fruit is found in delighting ourselves in the law of the Lord. Does following God's teachings bring you delight? Because when it does, you're gonna start seeing fruit showing up in your life. It's found, the, 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 the fruit is found in surrendering ourselves to Jesus and walking in obedience to his word. That's where the fruit is found. And that's, the, that's what he's gonna highlight in this final section that we're gonna look at in this sermon. Verse 46, Jesus says this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus begins this, this final section with another question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus says, that doesn't make any sense. That is a complete contradiction. To call someone Lord means that they have power and authority over your life, okay? And if you call them Lord, Lord, you're emphasizing that power and authority. You really have power and authority over my life. And so if you really have power and authority over my life, that means that I'm gonna do what you tell me to do. And Jesus says, I don't get it. You call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I'm telling you to do. That is a contradiction. That makes no sense. 
makes no sense at all. I want you to keep in mind that in this sermon, Jesus, he has given his followers some really hard things to put into practice, right? Not just love the brothers, love other Christians, not just love your wife, not just love your children. He told his followers, I mean, just moments ago, because again, we did that last week. He just got done telling them to love their enemies. And now he's looking at him and says, why do you call me Lord, not do the things that I tell you to do? This is not easy stuff. But as Jesus is concluding this message, he wants his followers to understand that these are not suggestions. Here's some good ideas that you might want to put into practice. You might not, so if you do, do. And you don't. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He said, my, my, my followers are going to rejoice when they suffer because their reward is great in heaven. They're going to live with an eternal perspective. My followers are going to love their enemies. That's what you're going to do as my follower. These are commands. They're, they're commands that Jesus expects his followers to obey. You see, when we become a follower of Jesus, it changes the way that we relate not just to others, but it changes the way we relate to him. It's required. To come to Jesus, you need to believe that he is Lord. That's what Romans 10, 9 says, right? Not just, it says, he who confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That's what Romans 10, 9 says. But what does it mean to confess that someone is Lord? That's what Jesus is getting at here. If you confess that I'm Lord and you don't do what I say, that means you don't really think that I'm the Lord right? But if you really do believe that I'm Lord, then you'll do what I'm telling you to do, and that'll be proof that you really do believe in me. We're not saved by our works. I got to say that. People get confused here, like, oh, so Chris is saying that, that so if you, if, you, if you make some good fruit, that means that you are, that's how you get saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that those who are saved will produce good fruit. That's the, that's the whole argument in the book of James, right? James isn't preaching that you're saved by works, but he's saying if you have a real saving faith, you're gonna produce good works. In fact, if you wanna go back, go back and read Romans 10 and then keep reading or, or Galatians 2, 8, and 9, right? Go, keep going, keep reading. We were created to produce to make, to, for good works that God prepared in advance for us to, to do, right? These are good, I said Galatians, didn't I? Ephesians. You, you know what I meant. It didn't make sense. It sounded awkward to me too when I said it. It's not easy stuff. Verse 47, Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Followers of Jesus submit to him as, as the Lord of their lives and they obey his commands. Now, in this parable, Jesus, this is the third parable, by the way, Jesus describes two types of people. Matthew's gospel, they're referred to as the wise and the foolish builders. And in this parable, both 
both of these men are building a house and that house is, is a picture. It's a, it's a representation of their life. How many of you guys are building a house? Every single one of you are building a house. You're like, no, I don't, I, I rent. No. <laughs> you're building a house, you're building a life. Everybody is. You are building a house, you're building a life. And the difference between the wise builder and the foolish builder is that the wise builder, he built his house, his life on a firm foundation. Whereas the foolish builder, where did he build his house? Just on the dirt, on the sand, no foundation whatsoever. It's amazing. I think about the idea that like how people will wander through this life and say, well, I believe this or I believe that. And you ask them, well, where do you get that? Well, it's just what I believe here's the deal. My belief is anchored in something concrete, something that does not change. This is my foundation. And the world might think I'm crazy, but here's the deal. I, I, I am gonna build my life on this. That's what I'm gonna do. And as long as God calls me to lead this church, that's what we're gonna do here. We're, we're gonna be anchored on what does this word say and how do we live this out that's our foundation. Jesus is our foundation. Well, what happened? What happened to these builders, right? Storms came. A storm came, and notice that both of these builders experienced the same trials, the same circumstances. I think that's an important thing to point out. You got one who's built their life on this, and you got another one who's built his life on nothing, but they both experienced the trials, they both experience. I, let's let go of the idea that if you follow Jesus, you're not gonna experience trials. Bible teaches us quite the opposite, right? Earlier in the sermon, Jesus said, you're gonna face suffering, you're gonna be persecuted, okay? But they both face these things. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. We're all gonna face these trials in difficult circumstances, but one of these houses, one of these lives was not moved. It wasn't shaken. The other one came crashing down immediately. The difference between the wise and the foolish builder was, that the, was the difference of a firm foundation. And according to Jesus, that difference, the difference is a matter of obedience to his words. Anyone can say, Lord, Lord, anybody can say that, but the one who believes it in their heart will demonstrate it by their obedience. Verse 47, Jesus says that the wise builder is the one who, look at what he says, the one who comes to Jesus, right, comes to me, hears the words of Jesus, and then does what Jesus says. Come to him, hear him, and then do what he's saying. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. That's building your life on a strong foundation. The foolish builder, he may say, Lord, Lord, he may say the right words, but when he hears Jesus, he does not do them, it says. Jesus says, man, you, you want to be a tree that produces good fruit? You, you want to build a house? You want to build a life that's not going to be shaken, one that, one that can withstand the tests and the trials? then build your life on the rock-solid foundation of my word. 
Build your life on me. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Listen to my words and do the things that I am calling you to do. He's the teacher that we want to be following, going back to the first part, the first parable. Brothers and sisters, being a follower of Jesus changes us. It changes us. You should not be the same if you've made a decision to follow Jesus. It changes the way we view our circumstances, especially as it relates to the suffering that we endure as a result of following him. It changes the way we view others, particularly our enemies. He empowers us to love them. Changes the way we view ourselves. He teaches us to deal honestly with our sins and to help us fulfill his calling in our lives to lead other people to him. And it changes how we view his word and how we view our relationship with him. We, we, we submit to Jesus as Lord and we obey the things that he is commanding us to do. This is what life in Jesus' kingdom looks like. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. Is it possible? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's radical. It's completely countercultural. It's completely counterintuitive, but it is exactly how Jesus lived, and he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to live the same way. And I'll tell you, when we do When we do this, when we follow Jesus and we do the things that he's commanding us to do, it is a very, very powerful testimony to a watching world. There's no other explanation for how you're able to do the things that Jesus is calling you to do. The only explanation is something supernatural has happened inside of you and that something is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus who came to this earth and lived a perfect life. We thank you that he came and he, he didn't just tell us what to do. He modeled it. He loved everyone, even those who persecuted him. Your word tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He had the eternal perspective that he calls his followers to have. And God, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would work in and through us God, expose the the, the planks that are running around in all of our eyes. Show us the sins that we need to deal with so we can be better equipped and better able to help others come to know you. What an incredible privilege it is to be your children. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you that you're doing this work in us, that, that you're bringing us through this process. You don't expect us to be perfect. You know we won't be, but you are guiding us in the truth and leading us as we walk in obedience to your word. So go with us this week, Lord. Help us to shine bright wherever you lead us that others might come to know you as well. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, our savior, amen.